Today, all over the world, there are thousands of Sino-Soviet intelligence agents with money to burn, looking for unsuspecting targets for exploitation among members of our forces. So, um, okay, so I guess we'll start off um, and we'll just, I guess we'll just hop right into it. We'll, we'll discuss a little about, um, I think we'll discuss like what we read, like okay. where, how, like how much we read. Um, I do want to say the version though as well, because uh, you and I both have the same version of Capital. So, so we're talking about uh, in this primary episode of the communist book club the marxist book club whatever we're going to call this we're calling <laughs> uh, we're we're reading capital volume one um out of the multi-part volume that Karl marx wrote to describe um capital and capital mm-hmm. and specifically we're talking about the pacific publishing studio version is copyrighted from 2010 now this version is actually kind of was kind of hard to find like you had to send me the link to it yeah yeah and on goodreads it's uh it's really hard to find too um but anyone who wants to talk about like anyone who wants to follow along um we're going through part one we're going to break this into two parts part one into two parts um the first thing is we're talking about chapter one and chapter two. So chapter one is on commodities and chapter two is on exchange. Mm-hmm. And then the next episode, we're going to be talking about, um, we're going to finish up part one with chapter three, which is money or the circulation of commodities. Mm-hmm. And that will be our next episode. So I do want to talk about before we start Austin, what have you read? Besides this, of or if anything, of um, Marx's writing, uh, just in in full length, just the manifesto, and, and that's it. I mean, that's that's the limit of it. Um, there's nothing else I've read. I mean, I've read. Uh, I have. Uh, I've I figured out a way to pirate like a bunch of PDFs onto my phone. So so the mm-hmm. uh, the books app, you know, the the, the typical book, the uh, standard books app that comes on the phone. It's like the the orange uh, books app. Mm-hmm. I've just what I've gone is I've gone onto these websites that just have these PDFs like just there, and I've just you can you can copy the PDF to your books app. So I just have like I have a shit ton of Marx's readings just like in PDF form like stored on my phone. But I try reading them on my phone and it just kind of feels weird. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's, I can't I can't do it. Um, but really, the only one that I have an actual physical copy of of his works uh, before I had before I had uh, Capital Volume One or Two. Um, mm-hmm. I actually was well, not a Marxist reading, but uh, uh, I ordered that book you're reading uh, by Eagleton, uh, Why Marx Is Right, because I just right. might have that too. So I ordered that, um, but uh, that's about it in terms of just the Marx reading. Uh, but I saw I saw your post about all of the uh, uh, you bought you bought some works I think recently. You've got a collection of uh, is it? Did you buy some of Engels stuff? Uh, no, I bought, um, so I bought the civil war in the U S which is a compilation of writings, um, oh, from, right. from Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, um, just specifically like some of their newspaper clippings, some of their excerpts from their larger work talking about the, um, the civil war in the United States. Oh, um, okay. so I have that, I have a couple of secondary literature. Um, like you were saying, I have the Terry Eagleton. Uh, why Marx was right. I have 
um, the uh, I have Derrida, Spectres and Marx, and I have I have a couple other things too. But but yeah, I I, uh, I think the only thing that I've actually read by Marx besides excerpts from larger work or is the I've only read the Communist Manifesto fully, and it's been a minute since I've read that. So. And, that and that's usually the go-to because like I think I think when you and I talked about it because. Uh, when I still lived in Cartersville, you and I talked about it. And you told me to. It's not, I think you were the, told, the one that told me it was actually pretty short. And for some reason, I thought it was this massive, you know, volume, but it, it wasn't. You know, it's. I think it's my version is just under. I think it's just under two hundred pages. My version is. Um, but other than that, um, you told. I think you were the one that told me. I think you read it before me because uh, I picked it up one day at a uh, Barnes and Noble, the one at Kennesaw. And I picked it up there, and uh, that's when I got it. Um, I went to the Barnes and Noble here, um, uh, uptown Albuquerque, and they actually had they had the Penguin Classics version of uh, uh, Capital. Uh, and it has like a huge introduction. I think I, I flipped through it, and its introduction is almost an entire book in itself. It was a hundred, I think it was a hundred and like twenty pages just until you get to the actual part one of Capital, and and that was uh, that that was I, I, I'm glad I didn't get that version. Uh, but I did see there was a cool quote on the back of it, uh, on the Penguin Classics version. It was like, uh, it was Engels. Uh, he was calling, uh, he called Capital the, uh, uh, the Bible of the working class or something like that. And, uh, and that's what the, uh, uh that's that, that quote stuck with me. And so that's, uh, we're going to, we're going to, I wanted to do like a little bit about, uh, the couple, they're, they're calling it the Bible. I wanted to get into a little bit about how, like, so if this is the if this is the Bible of the working class, then we should we call this episode of the series March three sixteen. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. So I was thinking we could do that. Um, yeah, um, the the penguin the penguin version. I do have to say uh, before we get into like the um, like the meat and potatoes, I do want to talk a little bit about the Communist Manifesto before we start. But uh, uh, the 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 penguin version is about a thousand pages long, whereas this version that you got is it's quite big. Um, this version that you and I have is quite big. It's it's small text, um, and it's only about two hundred pages long. So if it shows right. you how much like actual filler text is in the penguin version, right. um, it, like you said, it's a pretty long um, introduction mm-hmm. and stuff too. So, but also it's smaller text, so that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But yes. Yeah, so, Let's let's talk about okay. So we talked about um, the Communist Manifesto and how it's how it's pretty short. It's a pretty short read. Um, now I've heard that you're, if you want to start reading Marx, you shouldn't jump right into the Communist Manifesto. You should read Capital uh, first, which is interesting. What, what do you what do you think of that? Real quick, well, while I uh, move rooms, real quick. Well, I, I agree with that uh, for the most part because uh, when you get the first chunk of uh, capital is is just this massive. Uh, uh, it's like a, a poly or a political science kind of introduction uh, where Marx has to go into explaining what a commodity is and uh, essentially uh, translating it into a, a trade good. And uh, I think you need you need to understand the exchange value what he calls in the use value of these commodities before you can really jump into the, uh, the manifesto. There is a lot of terminology in the manifesto that you have to uh, look up. And, uh, I remember, I remember going into the Marxist readings website as all of that free shit in it. And, uh, I had to use that while I was reading the, uh, the manifesto. 
uh, Cole actually sent me a bunch of lists from the uh, the websites and all of the. He had some copies or some stuff to. He sent me just like a link of sources to go to for reading more Marxist stuff. Um, so when I jumped into that, uh, yeah, like it would have been nice. I guess it would have been like. I mean, I, I still got the point of it either way, but go into it like you see, you see terms like you know exchange value and use value. Uh, you see the word commodity a lot and labor power and. Uh, means of production and owning production and stuff like that, but uh, it is really helpful. Well, you get you get the meat of it in the, in the first chapter in the first part of uh, Capital because he really just jumps right into it. It's not like well, he doesn't really just jump into it, but he he eases you in. You know, he dips your toes in the water, and even just dipping your toes in the water, it's still really dense just because of how uh, uh, articulate Marx is. And um, you can definitely um, books like these. There's a the verbiage, maybe uh, I don't know. I don't know how many times it's been translated into English, but I can definitely, I can definitely see that there's certain verbiage that you just because of our you know modern diction and stuff and types of words we use. It's uh, it's definitely a tough read. Uh, I think the first part. I don't know how long it took you, but when I was going through part one, I think it took me because you because we did that podcast two weeks ago and you said you wanted to do capital on the seventh. How long did it take you to get through? I didn't start reading it until that Monday, I think. So I think it took me a couple of days. I think it took me a couple of days to get through uh, to get through part one, um, and that was uh, a task. Yeah, it. I mean, it's it's very dense. I think is the the biggest problem. Um, I know that like Althusser, he um, he's a French uh, Marxist theorist. He he has a translation, and he actually recommends reading Capital out of order. He recommends reading all of Capital before you start with the first and second chapter. He says read the first and second chapter actually last because it's so dense. Um, but mm-hmm. no, I mean it. It took me. See, I, I wanted to give us two weeks. So, so this is a bi monthly. Mm-hmm. This is going to be a right. bi-monthly pod, and right. I want to give us two weeks to read it because it's so dense and there's so much to talk about. I feel like in 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 the you know the the limited time that we have to talk about it, but um, I think that it took me probably I want to say probably a week, and this is between doing other stuff. I mean, I've I've been reading other. Um, other things like, you know, just for enjoyment and for, you know, bettering myself as a person and stuff. Um, but yeah, I want to say it probably took me, I probably got through the first 10 pages in one night. Um, and then after that, it took me a little while. Probably I do like two to three pages a day or something just to try and like digest it a little bit. Cause like you said earlier, it's, it's pretty dense, but um, yeah, I, I wanted to say about the communist manifesto before we move on to like actually, you know, what's in Capital Volume 1 is that the Communist Manifesto is this great um, look into the, what people call the humanist marks. Yeah. And cap- capital is more the scientific marks. So, so humanist marks is, is about talking about this, um, I mean, people who haven't read it will call it utopian, but mm-hmm. about this, this future society in which capitalism has you know, completely failed and, and in which, mm-hmm. you know, I think, I think like he's that, eradicated. That's a pretty good word to describe it. Right. And it's this thing where he talks, he doesn't really talk much about what a communist society will look like in the communist manifesto. He does talk about, um, he talks about more of like the setting up of the society, like how, um, how it will come about, like, um, well, yeah, you, know, you know, telling the working class to take up arms and shit like that. 
Yeah, and and he doesn't necessarily, and this is the thing I think a lot of people that like we need to talk about up front if you if you're new to Marxist reading, which Mark the reason we're we're obviously we're starting with Marx on the Communist Book Club is because he's the probably the most important thinker in terms of um, mm-hmm. communist thought. I mean Marxism, come on. Uh, but he talks a lot in the Communist Manifesto about how capitalism is like. So, so the capitalist is like a necromancer. He describes it. He says the capitalist is a necromancer that conjures up from the ground capital, and capital is like the dark forces, like the powers that be. And then the capitalist is a necromancer that can't control the dark forces. He's like Doctor Faust in that regard. Oh yeah, um, yeah. And I think so. I think moving from the Communist Manifesto, like the humanist Marx, to Capital, because he wrote Capital a lot later. Uh, in his life, I think he talks about more, he tries to demystify some of the mystical aspects of capitalism. Mm-hmm. And I think he does a great job. What, what do you think in, in these first two chapters, at least, what do you think of the job that he does of trying to demystify capitalism? When you say demystify, do you mean like he uh, discredited it? Like just kind of like takes the, takes the shroud off of it? Is that what you're saying? Well, ca- capitalism is much this like um, it's this like liberal, right? Like this um, in light post Enlightenment era um, way of organizing society, right? Mm-hmm. And I feel that a lot of times these Enlightenment era thinkers talk about capitalism as this um, ethereal being. Essentially, they talk about the invisible, oh, like invisible hand, yeah. the invisible yeah. hand of the free market, and and and, yeah. and all these things, um, but. I think that Marx does a great job of breaking it down piece by piece and explaining how capital functions and how specifically in these first two chapters, especially chapter one, how commodities function. Mm-hmm. Would you yeah. agree with that? Yeah, well, uh, the, the biggest chunk of uh, – well, commodities really just make it uh, the biggest chunk of that, uh, that chapter one reading. And uh, we – it's funny because I remember uh, – I, I took a business ethics class when I was in uh, when I was in college. And I had a guy who was like, uh, um, they he had like this thing on his door that he was like a proponent of like uh, a fair exchange or something about exchange value. I remember asking him about that. He was like, "Oh yeah, you should look up uh, you should look up uh, exchange value of commodities and uh, use value." So I looked it up, and it, and that was actually that was one, I think that might have been one of my first or second actual exposures to uh, Marxist works. And so um, when I was uh, going over that, uh, that's when I realized, oh, I think I'm pretty sure my professor was like, a, he's a Marx dude, you know, he's a, he's a Marx Mark. Uh, he's, uh, I think a lot of his teachings, now that I think about a lot of his teachings, uh, when I think back to some of his lectures, a lot of the times he was a big proponent of like uh, a, uh, he mentioned the uh, ownership of production. He mentioned that a lot and a collective uh, ownership of production. And at the, you know, at the time, it kind of just went over my head because, you know, I think this was like senior year of college. So I think I'm already burnt out. Maybe it was, maybe it was junior year, but I'm, I'm already burnt out. So the guy, the guy's giving me my first actual exposure to Marxist and most of it's just going in one ear and out the other. And, you know, it's just no taking. Um, but now here we are, uh, several years later and the, the first, uh, chapter of uh, capital of this, uh, is it goes right into the detail of use value and exchange value. Um, 
and I think I think he does a good job of he uses the definitions and the explanations of what commodities are uh, to kind of demystify capitalism to show that it really is just like a. Uh, um, I'm trying not to I'm trying not to jump all the way into chapter two because like how he ends chapter two is like perfectly encapsulates like what it essentially breaks all the commodities break down into they essentially break down into the power and weird fetishism of money. And, uh, but, uh, I think he does a really good job of that. Um, because commodities, uh, you know, they really are at the end of the day, they're, they're things, but he doesn't, I like, I like how he says that they're needs and you have to have commodities to fill your needs, even though it doesn't matter what kind of need that is. You know, he's like, he doesn't, uh, you know, he doesn't kind of narrow in, uh, certain specifics. I mean, well, he gets into some examples, like, you know, uh, do you remember what he was talking about? Uh, he was talking. To, I, I don't think it was in this section. But he was talking about Robinson's Island, or the like. The guy has to do all the labor by himself. Robinson. Yeah, he talks about the yeah. like alienated labor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he's doing all this stuff to provide for himself, and uh, he even starts. But he even so, you think he's just going to talk about basic needs, like basic survival needs that commodities provide? But he even goes on to say sometimes, uh, or a lot of the times, it's not even the. It's not a survival need that a commodity has to fulfill. A commodity has to fulfill just any kind of need. It can be an intrinsic need, just like an emotional need, or like a, just a, a basic, uh, you know, I, I get enjoyment out of this, so I, I need this. Um, right. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I, I need this to, to increase my happiness. You know, I need that. I need that serotonin. I enjoy this, so it's a commodity to me, and I really like that because that gives it a more. That's that's his humanist coming in and saying. Uh, it doesn't have to be a survival need. It can be just a very human need that you enjoy. You know? Yeah. So, so this first part. So, so in chapter one, commodities, he describes. So, so typically, I, and I don't usually do this, but uh, I've been doing it for especially this work, and I think I, I highly recommend this. I ha- I recommend highlighting, um, especially in oh, this yeah. in, in oh, this yeah. to talk about um, or, or to, to to go back over and to to highlight important things. And so, so he describes that um, a commodity is, in the first place, an object outside us, a thing that by its properties satisfies human wants of some sort or other. So he describes, um, so they either, the wants can either spring from the stomach or from fancy, and it makes no difference. Um, and he says, neither are we here concerned to know how the object satisfies these wants, whether directly as means of subsistence or indirectly as means of production. And he also, so he goes into this to explain that there are two things that of utility in a commodity, right? The utility of a thing. So the utility of a thing makes it a use value, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But this utility is not a thing of error. Um, It. It says, being limited by the physical properties of the commodity, it has no existence apart from that commodity, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that's something that he kind of um, goes on throughout this entire section that we've read uh, to describe that that there aren't inherent things within a thing to make it a commodity. Like you said, uh, and we'll we'll get to this in a minute, but but the the fact that Robinson Crusoe's, like, labor isn't... Mm -hmm a commodity because it doesn't have a, it doesn't have a use value and it doesn't have an exchange value. Right. Right. So, so he said that the exchange value at first sight presents itself as a quantitative relation as the proportion in which 
values in use of one sort are exchanged for those of another sort, a relation constantly changing with time and place. So in this entire section, he describes um, that there are a few different ways of like valuing a commodity, right? Which is use value and it's like usefulness and exchange value, which manifests itself in other commodities. Um, and a lot of people make fun of capital. Uh, I, I do have to say this up top. A lot of people make fun of capital because he loves to talk about coats a lot. Yeah, he does. <laughs> oh my God. The, the, uh, he, linen, he used linen and cotton and he used something else. Uh, but he would, yeah, I remember the, uh, if the uh, the ten linens equals one coat, you know what is uh, what is that like twenty in the formula? He used twenty linens or something like that, and then uh, and then he even gets into the different maybe uh, uh, we'll make this a point, but I remember him talking about how the different types of labor are used to make that coat, and uh, yeah, that, yeah, we'll get into that later. In, in, in page, I mean, even in page two, he begins to talk about the that. Um, the use value of commodities, they have only one common property left and that of them being products of labor. Every commodity, I think Amherst is home too. He talks about how human labor is embodied in them, right? Mm -hmm. He talks about how a commodity gets its value because of the labor that is used to create a commodity. Mm -hmm. And he he even discusses that, that there's a difference between the coat and the, the linen because in the cloth itself, it, it takes labor to make the cloth, but it takes more labor to make the coat, yep. right? But whereas, so, so he, he describes, you know, um, that's why it's, uh, you know, it's very, um, it, it's very, uh, like, the, like the, the, the exchange values are varied in those two oh, because yeah, of the yeah. Labor right. that it costs, and, and and it does to produce them, and and I think in in this way he's trying to, um, and, and he even calls the labor. He says that um, he calls it the value creating substance. Mm. Um, that's that's good. So, <laughs> yeah, it's very good. Yeah, he he, yeah. he ex- explains that labor in towards a commodity and in creating a commodity creates. Mm-hmm inherent value because it instead of being labor for oneself and so used to in society we had like you farmed to eat and then what happened was like you had this like surplus labor is what what he he calls it later on he calls it surplus labor and the surplus labor can be sold because it someone doesn't want to do it or they need you know something right i need a um I've been working in the fields all day, so I need a uh, what uh, I need. I need this plow, this certain plow. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, but I, I can't make the plow. I don't have the skills to make the plow. But someone who's skilled can make the plow. So I go and I buy the plow from him. Well, used to I, everyone made their own plows, but because I'm too busy working in the fields, I, I would rather buy my plow. So, right. so the plow is has a use value to the person who owns it, right? And and again, I, I want to stress though that he he talks about use value not just in terms of I can use this. He talks about utility as a thing that is is intrinsic in the commodity um and not necessarily the most useful. So so I mean a use value so this book that I'm holding right now is a use value to me because I would like to read it and it's a desire right. to have. Right. So, 
whether fancy, a desire of fancy or a desire of the stomach, they're both useful to me. Right. Um, that's exactly what he said. Yeah, he, the, useful to their stomach or just useful to any kind of need that you want. Um, back to the, uh, I wanted to say that uh, he even, you talked about the labor, there's more labor involved in putting the coats together. Um, he even went on to say that just because it's a different type of labor doesn't uh, doesn't diminish it as you know like a lesser labor. It's like it may be more it may be more mentally straining uh, than physically straining. You know, like one person may be doing more mental work, which is still labor. You know, you're flexing your. I think he says you're flexing your brain, the equivalent of something. You're flexing your brain or something like that. So um, there, uh, he. I don't remember the specific details of it. He says something on the lines of, uh, you know, labor. Labor is. Uh, uh, it's adaptive, or it's it's like multi multifunctional. You know, you've got uh, those that have to uh, use their brain more than their hands, and then you have those that use their hands more. Um, but he's, he he says something along the lines of, "Jeez, uh, uh, I had it. Now I don't remember it." Um, but yeah, that, that that was kind of just a point. That, that labor is different, but it doesn't diminish it. You know, it's still there's there are different types of labor labor muscles. Something like I think he said. Uh, uh, different labor muscles are used uh, uh, to make those different commodities, but they they still uh, you know they're still the result of that labor. So, right. It, it's it's um labor is needed to produce all commodities, right? So I think that's something he he kind of regardless of what that what form that labor takes, I think is a right very interesting point that you know he makes is that you know. Right. Um, whether that be mental labor or physical labor or whatever, it doesn't diminish the fact that there was labor that was put into that um, right. to create a value, right? And I think that he 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 hammers home a lot of that. I mean, he he talks about how um, the value of a commodity represents human labor in the abstract, and, and this is something that he kind of touches on a lot, talking about how it's mere. I love this. This is uh, part. So, so Marx is actually kind of cheeky a lot of times. He's kind of like tongue in cheek, um, kind of catty. He calls it. He says, um, "Let's see." Labor, so he said, "The expenditure of human labor, or, or, uh, and just as in society, a general or a banker plays a great part, but mere oh wait, uh, and just oh, yeah. as in society, a general yeah. or a banker plays a great part, but mere man, on the other hand, a very shabby part." So here, with mere human labor. Right. <laughs> so, this is just, this is after he said the expenditure of simple labor power, i.e., of the labor power which, on an average, apart from any special development, exists in the organism of every ordinary individual. Mm-hmm. So it's funny because he's talking here about how um, for society um, to to function for for commodities to be produced and and society as a whole function that that the, that that's exactly what's needed is is mere human labor right right and it's a skilled labor counts only as simple labor intensified right <laughs> or rather as multiplied simple labor a given quantity of skilled being considered equal to a greater quantity of simple labor so he's trying to equate the two, right? There's, there's what he called simple labor and skilled labor and simple labor is needed just as much as skilled labor. And I think he, right. I think he makes that like inherent by like making the, the tongue in cheek mere human labor mm-hmm. um, reference. Right. Um, but yeah, so I think he, I mean, he also uses stuff like um, 
he uses stuff that that uh, labor. Okay, so he says something. He says this along, like backtracking a little bit. Um, let's see. So he says that use values are uh, uh, the, the bodies of commodities. They're combinations of two elements, matter and labor. If we take away the useful labor expended upon them, a material substratum is always left, which is furnished by nature. He talks yeah. about nature in these sections too. Mm-hmm. Without the help of man, the latter can, on- can work only as nature does. That is by changing the form of matter. Nay, more, in this work, of changing the form, he is constantly helped by natural forces. We see then that labor is not only not the only source of material wealth of use values produced by labor. As William Petty puts it, labor is its father and the earth is its mother. So he talks yes. about how how labor so so nature provides us with the um, raw materials used. So, so for instance, if I'm building, I think he talks about this too. If I'm, if he, if the chair maker is building a chair, then wood is furnished by nature, right. and then the chair maker's labor creates the chair in in its form, and then that is what brings it labor. Is the fact that it has a material presence, and the fact mm-hmm. that it has a presence embodied in the labor used to make it. Yeah, yeah, that's good stuff. He's. Uh... He's really creative because I remember that stuck with me when, uh, you know, if, if labor is the father, then the earth is the mother. Uh, I remember, I remember that sticking with me more than anything out of that. I think that entire chapter really, uh, just because that's such a good way of, of, uh, of putting it under the, uh, the microscope. Um, but yeah, that one, that one definitely stuck with me there. Um, but he's, <laughs> Marx is, he's doing, I'm telling you, like, this is, this is his, this is his 316 moment. He's cutting a promo on us, like, Super early in the game, man. He's like, he's like just throwing all of this at us, and we've got to catch up. You know, he's this, he's this guy that's been working in the political uh, philosophy territory for a while. He's, uh, he's got a good following. He's, he's, he's the. Uh, we just need to, we need to put him over his good baby face, and then he throws out this, uh, this, uh, this masterpiece that is Capital, and, and he's just. He, we just weren't ready for it, man. Like he really is. This really was his three sixteen moment, which is why, which is why I think we should call this Mark's three sixteen. But being that it's it's supposed to be like you know the the Bible of the working class and the uh, proletariat. So I think someone said it perfectly, and I don't remember who said it. They said that um oh it was on a podcast called Why Theory. I was listening to it, and he said mm-hmm. that if, when you read Capital, he suggested reading Capital's um, chapters one and two. He's like, that's what you should read of Marx. Um, and that's what we should read first. But he talks about, he's like, when you read it, and I, I felt this, and I, I want to ask your opinions of it too, but when you read it, you understand that not only did this guy understand capital better than you, he understands it better than you with over 100 years of capital production. Like, oh, yeah, well, that yeah, we well, have. He, he has, he didn't even live in late stage capitalism. <laughs> yeah. You know, right. and, 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 and he, he knew, you know, he was right. So, right. Um, the industrial revolution, right. um, you know, was relatively soon for Marx, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I mean, capitalism was a, was a form of bourgeois capitalism was definitely a form of, um, of government, uh, during the, the French revolution is what, what caused it. I mean, that was like, I mean, I was reading, so I was reading this thing on Heigl, right? Which Heigl is a huge influence on Marx. I mean, mm-hmm. if you read this, if you read Capital and 
like I think you and I were talking about, it's very dense. It's kind of hard to get through sometimes. Uh, you can definitely tell that Marx is a, is a big fan of Heigl because Heigl is like impossible to get through. But Heigl, he, um, he actually taught at the university that Marx went to. I think he said it was Marx went to the university six, 30 years after Heigl's death. And mm-hmm. Heigl was around when Napoleon invaded Prussia, Prussia at the time, but it's Germany, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's how close Marx was to the invention of like bourgeois capitalism. So Marx had this, you know, probably what was it like a hundred years or so, maybe a little less of, of, of capital to, to talk about. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he kind of, so, so in section three of chapter one, he talks about, uh, he talks about the form of value or exchange value. He goes into more mm-hmm. depth on this. Yeah. He said, he says the forms of commodities, they have two forms. They have a physical or natural form and a value form. And he says that um, the value of commodities, I love this. This is great. This is great, Marsh, right here. The value of commodities has a purely social reality. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I think is incredible. He says it, it requires this reality only insofar as it is an expression of embodiment of one identical social substance vis-a-vis human labor. Yeah. It follows as a matter of course that value can only manifest itself in the social relation of commodity to commodity. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's 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 there's the humanist side of, uh, of Marx coming out there. Yeah, the, the the fact that that the social relation. So so this is we're getting. I'll get a little bit ahead, and then I want to come like pull it back. Mm. But Marx talks about alienation a lot, and he talks about how there's like alienated labor. And um, alienation goes right into commodity fetishism. Yeah. And this is commodity fetishism is, is a social relations breakdown between people and they are between commodities now. Right. Mm-hmm. So that, that's part of the exchange value. Right. That's the value form, yeah. the, the use value and exchange value combined. Mm-hmm. Um, so. But he also, after this section, describes how there needs to be a universality between commodities, mm-hmm. right? right? So if I, if I measure everything, again, let's skip it a little bit ahead. If I measure everything in terms of cotton, if I say, okay, that book is worth two cottons or whatever, two bags of cotton, then it's kind of hard to keep track of how much cotton is everything worth. So we attribute, and this is where he comes up with this, their money form. Yep. Right. So we use mm. the universal, which is so, he says it's actually something found in Earth, which is gold and, and silver. Gold and silver. Yeah. yeah. So we use that to ascribe these commodities of value in relation to each other because everything is tied together with gold and everything is then he says we move from gold to money. Right. Yeah. Uh, and right. And then. And then like we, we're jumping ahead here because this is like he, he ends chapter two with that. He's like, it, it basically the, the commodities uh, become money themselves. Like we see them, we see them as money themselves. And that's where, and that's where that, uh, that fetishism comes from because we don't see the, we don't see commodities as a product of labor anymore. We just see them as money. Right. Mm-hmm. I think he says something along the lines of that. Um, and, and he even, uh, he says something, like, uh, it, it's like a, it's like some, it's like dangling a shiny little thing in front of our faces, you know, it's, oh, I want that. I want that. You know, it's because, uh, it, it's probably worth, you know, to, to it, the mindset is it's worth a lot of money because that's what it really was reduced down to. 
Mm-hmm. Or he said it was like crystallized or something. What did he say? Yeah, he said, he said something along the lines of it, it's crystallized. It's it's the form. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's what is it? The exchange value crystallized, right? It's it's, right. it's like uh, this abstract notion of um, okay, that lamp is worth you know however many cotton. But because like that's right. ridiculous, not everybody needs cotton. It's like that lamp is worth you know a hundred bucks or whatever. Right. Right. I do want to say though that I I. I want to say to, to listeners or whatever that um, the okay, so he likes him. He's very much a philosopher in this regard. He's, he's got a, a social science and philosophy training. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he talks about um, when he when he discusses the the different like h- how the, the the values or the exchange values and, and then how they form equations, mm-hmm. he uses a lot of equations. In yeah, that. he does. Um, it, it, it's a lot of math and like you can, uh, it really is crazy. Cause, uh, I remember, uh, kind of a little off topic, but it ties into his equations. I remember, uh, my first realization that like math is almost the backbone of everything. You can, math is like, can be applied to most sciences. Uh, I was, uh, I was studying music and I was learning about measures and I was learning about the, the formulas and, and the steps. And I was like, this is a lot of math. <laughs> and I was like, my, my music teacher was like, this is all it is. I was like, holy shit. And then, and then I'm reading this. And I'm just like, he's just putting this all in math. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I had a, I had that similar, uh, epiphany. Uh, but it helps because, uh, uh, you know, thankfully, uh, with the, uh, formula education that we have, it's easy to understand and he can put it into, uh, into easier terms. But I did like that he wrote out the formulas. You know, he actually wrote the symbols or, they were printed into the, the text and everything. So, um, yeah, there, there are a lot of formulas. There was, uh, especially in that section in the exchange value, I, I think he wrote out maybe like 10 or 15 different formulas in the span of all those pages. Oh yeah. I mean, he, he, that's the thing about it is like definitely in chapter one, at least, um, right. There's just a bunch of, uh, there's just a bunch of like, <laughs> towards the end is a bunch of math. I, I, I think mm-hmm. I texted you while we were reading it and I said that like chapter or page 18 is when it like gets good because I'm not a math mm-hmm. guy. So it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. so this is, you're like, okay, yeah, I, I get this. And there kind of comes a point where you're just like, I think he's just saying the same thing, uh, you know, very, uh, frequently or he's just he's fluffing it up a lot and so you get the point pretty you get the point pretty quickly so a lot of it's just uh you know extra info but yeah it really doesn't feel like uh you uh i think you and i we come from uh, we weren't you and i weren't the math the math people in school because right. i i excelled in english and i excelled in uh humanities and history um so when he's doing all the scientific and laboratory work i'm just like okay yeah i think i think i'm onto this but once he jumps into like the actual, uh, um, and it sucks because like we, we ended, we ended this, this read with the best part. And so now like, now I'm eager to keep going because like yeah. I know he's only going to get better from here, you know? So, um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely tough to get through just because of, uh, not uh, just on top of it being dense. Like he, he just throws all these numbers at you and, and he asks, and he, I mean, he really walks you through the application of it. So that's good. It's not like he's just like, this equal this and equal that, and then he moves on to something else. Like, no, he, he really, you know, he walks through the application of the exchange value, and like, and like you said, he does, he does use codes. I think in every example he uses codes. Or he uses, <laughs> he uses cotton. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it's, I, yeah, it's a good example to use. You know, everybody, everyone needs a code. Right, exactly. Um, mm-hmm. I, I do want to say though, I, I think I disagree with Althusser though. I think I think you should start with um, chapter one and two. 
because um, I feel like this a lot of this like slog that you have to get through um, is very important for the rest of it. I mean, but then also, I mean, you get stuff like this. I mean, since no commodity, this is talking about the money form. Since mm-hmm. no commodity can stand in, in the relation of equivalent to itself and thus turn its own bodily shape into the expression of its own value, every commodity is compelled to choose some other commodity for its equivalent. And that's and he's like, mm-hmm. and to accept use value, that is to say the bodily shape or that other commodity as the form of its own value. So he's talking about the the exchange value of commodities, right? And, and that's mm-hmm. when he talks about how the the the, the money form steps in is the basically like the great equalizer between commodities. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and then, I mean, like this entire, uh, I, I mean, this entire section is just like, I, I think it's important for what comes, you know, especially when we mm-hmm. start talking about, I mean, let's see, he, he uses names like the very essence of the form is that the material commodity itself, you know, um, it, it, it's endowed with the form of value by nature itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love this. Uh, he says he's talking about, um, you know, just how commodities like how the values come out. And he says, since the enigmatical character of the equivalent form, um, let's see, the equivalent form, which escapes the notice of the bourgeois political economist. Mm-hmm. He yeah, definitely thrown down until this form completely developed, confronts him in the shape of money. Yeah. So. He describes how, like, economists, especially, again, bourgeois political economists, only think of the end result, which is the shape of money. And he yep. says that he describes how the, the, the value of the form itself is enigmatical mm-hmm. to the bourgeois political mm-hmm. economists, mm-hmm. which I think is incredible. I mean, mm-hmm. it's – yeah, he uh, – and then he goes on – when he was talking about that, I was thinking I – I just kept thinking back to uh, – my, my ethics class because um, the we had a brief discussion in ethics that tied directly into because he mentioned markets he mentioned how like investors and financiers and the political economists they they do that they really do only care about the end result and they the mean the uh, the means they go about to see what their market I think he, he it's basically like he talks about competition and he he basically says that like the bourgeois they collectively work together. For their own interests, they all literally just pile together and they're like, "Hey, let's let's all do." Or someone starts it, and then the other bourgeois people jump in. And they're like, "Hey, we're going to do this too, and we're going to make a competition." And I mean, it's going to be uh, uh, it's going to be a commodity that's uh, I don't know what a good example to use. I guess we could we could say on coats, but like you know, we the the end game is not to provide a coat for everyone; it's to make as much money off these coats as we can. Right, you know, and then there's several people doing it, and they're, the, I mean, at the end of the day, they're, they do different color coats, they may do different, you know, different uh, textured coats, um, and at the end of the day, essentially, it's going to collectively uh, benefit uh, those the bourgeois. They're going to, uh, in that mindset, it's like, uh, you know, I, there, there's a lot of examples of, of greed and like uh, storytelling. But like it's really when they first get that that taste and they see oh I can do this I can I can exploit this way I can I can make money off of this and I can only care about the end game here mm-hmm. um, and uh, and I can make I can make the laborers believe that they're being provided uh, for in in the form of this money so um, do you think yeah. do you think that's part of the I mean 
I think that's part of the enigmatical character money, right? Yeah. Right. It's definitely I think it's used I think it's useful in not only that it, it creates a great equalizer among commodities, but also that it's it's like a stutterfuge between what your actual value is, what you're providing the commodity itself versus what the capitalist is getting out of you. Right. Um yeah. here so I think we um you you know, talking about like all this stuff, I, I think it's important to also say that in, in this first chapter alone too. Mm-hmm. He talks about how um, he, ta- he 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 gets into alienation a little bit. Like he doesn't. He, this isn't where he. I don't think this chapter. Maybe it's a little later on. Uh, um, that that wasn't this, where he. That wasn't where he talked about private labor, was it? No, was that, no, that wasn't. Oh, well, no, actually, it is. You're right. Yeah. So, so I mean, even as even as early as chapter, or, or as, even as early as page thirteen in in our version. Uh, right, which is, um, I think it's right before section four on part one. He talks about the the dominant relation. This is, again, good stuff. Like, I highly recommend highlighting these uh, just, just to pull this out, like, I guess in a Twitter argument or whatever. Yeah. The dominant relation between man and man is that of owners of commodities. Mm-hmm. That's good. Is, that's good shit. Right that's there. right. That's right. Yeah, like every product of labor is in all states of society a use value, but only, but it is only at a definite historical epoch that in a society's development that such a product becomes a commodity. These at the epoch where, when the labor spent on the production of a useful article becomes expressed as one of the objective qualities of that article, i.e. as its value. Some good, I mean, there's some good singers in here. Mm. You know, he talks about how um, the linen, by virtue of its form of its value, now stands in social relation. So I like this a lot. He 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 harps on this all the time in this chapter, talking about how um, social relation between commodities is a real material thing, mm-hmm. right? How the relation between man and man is that as owners of commodities. Yep. My, you know, my, my, you know, if I'm driving a better car than you, that means I own more commodities to sell than you, or I sold my labor power, you know, mm-hmm. uh, more than you or, or, or whatever, how, how my expression of like a social, right. my social standing is directly related to my ownership of commodities. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see what else. Oh, he, so he talks about, um, okay, this is pretty good. So there's a whole section and this is, this is the section that definitely is not my wheelhouse. It's the one where he talks about how 20 yards of linen is equal to one coat, 10 pounds of tea, 40 pounds of coffee. <laughs> yeah. He just yeah. makes them all the time. Yeah. <laughs> but this is the, so this is a, a very important thing that is lost in all of this. He says that, um, that, uh, let's see, he talks about the altered character of the form of value. He says it's converted into commodities by accidental and occasional exchanges, mm-hmm. which I think is very important in that it shows that that to, to you know every, everyone only says this and it's I think it's very like ethereal to say it, but it's um every like the the again it's like the invisible hand of the free market, right? It's like what what's the demand and what's the whatever whatever but he talks about how that like to figure out the demand it's got to be just a bunch of accidental and random occurrences right right like if we if we're, all of us are procuring 
Funko Pops, right, or something, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, if all of us are buying Funko Pops, and it's just it's just randomly that I want Funko Pops, you want Funko Pops, you know, Joe Blow down the street wants Funko Pops, so it sets the price at ten dollars or whatever because that's how much people are willing to pay mm-hmm. for them, you know, or certain mm-hmm. ones, you know, depending on different factors. Mm-hmm. Um, so and he's going to talk a little bit more about price later on, I think, and, and like. Uh, and where prices are, uh, um, I, I think I think pricing and commodity. I think he's going to get a little bit more to the next one, right? I think the next chapter. Is mm-hmm. he talk about pricing? Yeah. One, one yeah. I mean, and then let's just go ahead. I guess we'll end out this chapter just talking about the 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 meat and potatoes. And this is what takes it. This is the meat and potatoes of, this, of our reading today. The fetishism of commodities and the secret thereof. It's section four. Mm-hmm. It's so good. It says uh, a commodity appears at first sight a very a very trivial thing and easy to underst- easily understood. It says so. It's it's that subterfuge, right? That that commodities mm-hmm. seem to be that they're easily understood. Um, let's see. It so man changes the forms of nature, changes the forms of materials furnished by nature in such a way as to make them useful to him. The form of wood, for instance, is altered by making a table out of it. Yet for all that, the table uh, continues to be that common everyday thing, wood. But so soon as it steps forth as a commodity, it is changed into something transcendent. It not only stands with its feet on the ground, but in relation to all other commodities, it stands on its head and evolves out of its wooden brain grotesque ideas far more wonderful than table turning ever was. Uh A commodity, therefore, is a, is therefore a mysterious thing simply because in it the social character of men's labor. This is the most important part I feel of this this chapter. A commodity is therefore a mysterious thing simply because in it the social character of men's labor appears to them as an objective character stamped upon the product of that labor, because the relation of the producers to the tums, to the sum total of their own labor is presented to them as a social relation existing not between themselves, but between the products of their labor. Yep. Mm-hmm. But it is different with commodities. They're the existence of things, Q, uh, QUA, commodities, and the value relation between the products of labor, which stamps them as commodities, have absolutely no connection with their physical properties and with the material relations arising therefrom. There it is a definite social relation between men that assumes in their eyes the fantastic form of a relation between things. Amen. (laughs) He says, this I call the fetishism, which attaches itself to the products Mm -hmm. of labor so soon as they are produced as commodities and which is therefore inseparable from the production of commodities. So I think that's a, Mm -hmm. I think all of that is powerful powerful stuff talking about how mm-hmm. we attribute to, to, to break those down into, into um, like layman's terms, I guess uh, we attribute this like ethereal quality to commodities. Um, whereas it's the table is no longer a table produced by Austin. The table is the table produced by someone who knows who cares. It's a table. Right. And I yeah. buy the table because I, Matt, am a worker who make, makes enough money per hour or whatever to afford that table. So I buy the table mm-hmm. and 
I don't, or, or like, I think the best example in my critical theory class was my teacher was like, now where does everyone's clothes come from? You don't even know where your clothes comes from. It's like, oh, China, Taiwan, wherever. Mm-hmm. You'll never meet the person that made your clothes True. and they'll never meet you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So therefore your social relation to them is through your commodity. Mm-hmm. And he, and, yeah, yeah, he, yeah. We, I, need, I need, I needed a shirt. I needed a coat. I needed a table, you know, who, who cares where it came from? I need that. I need mm-hmm. that commodity. So, um, but that's, uh, yeah, he's, he's hitting, he's hitting the nail right on the head. And our labor alienates our, ourselves because we're not making the, we're not making the commodity for ourselves. We're making it for who knows. Yeah. And that's where, that's where Robinson Crusoe comes in. Uh, do you want to, you seem like you want to talk a little bit about, the Robinson Crusoe section, which is uh, page 21 in case you guys are wondering at home. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, I got, I got out of it. I think what I was going to say was just, he, uh, um, he mentions, you know, cutting down the trees and providing shelter to himself and how that labor is, uh, um, what type of labor did he say that was? Or, uh, it's not, uh, it's, it's not, not a commodity. It's not a commodity. Yeah. 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 He said even praying is a type of labor, but it's a type of labor that's personal to Robinson mm-hmm. Crusoe. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, he he only talked he only used that as an example very briefly, uh, didn't he? I think I think it was mainly just in uh, the connection of uh, commodities. Um, yeah, it, it's showing that there are difference between commodities and work, right? I think that's yeah. the thing like labor. Uh, Crusoe doesn't, he's, he crash lands on this island and he doesn't, he does a lot of labor, but it's not, it's not alienated labor because he does it for the survival of himself. Right. So he's not, he's not alienated from his own labor because the labor doesn't take on a social relation to him. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And he even ends it with, uh, there, he, t- he talks about it. It appears at all events as their own mutual personal relations. Uh-huh. He says, and they're not disguised under the shape of social relations between the products of labor. Um, so the last thing that I wanted to say is uh, of this chapter is that um, he he ends the section with my favorite character. He says, who fails here to call to mind our good friend Dogberry, who informs neighbor Seacole that to be a well-favored man is the gift of fortune, but reading and writing comes by nature. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm gonna have to read that one now because uh, I had to ask you who that uh, who that character was. Yeah, I had to read it for my um, Shakespeare class. Dogberry is uh, he's he's a uh, he's the the so, so in every Shakespeare play, there's a a joker like a jokester character, right? Yeah, the jester. And, yeah, yeah, and he's the jester from Much Ado About Nothing. He's he's a guard, which is hilarious. So let's get to chapter two. I, I think chapter two is a lot shorter. So right. It's only a couple of pages in this, in our version, uh, not including the footnote. So he talks about this chapter is all about exchange. He says that um, commodities are things and therefore mm-hmm. without power of resistance against man. Um, he talks about there must be a right of private proprietors. Mm-hmm. So a lot of us, a lot of our uh, systems of government are based on private property. So the protection of commodities, or if you're a capitalist, the protection of the means of production. Uh, he doesn't get into mean, means of production too much in, in these first two chapters. He talks about it a little bit in chapter one, but not too terribly much to like mm-hmm. make note. Right. Um, 
let's see. He describes that, it, of course, he, he the, so chapter two, I feel, is very much just like a, a like a, it could almost be a footnote to chapter one. Right. And what, it's almost like his, it's almost like his first, it's like his philosophical application to everything he just said in chapter one. You know, it's like, uh, um, you, you can tell it's only going to get more philosophical from here on out. And, mm-hmm. um, I, it really, it, yeah, it really does kind of just like a footnote or like a, uh, okay, now, you know, take, take, uh, take this idea, uh, take this uh, idea of fetishism now apply it to uh, commodities and money. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it, it was really short. I it was only what three pages or four pages. Yeah, it's only a couple of pages, and and I think that I think that the most important things though, I'll hit these really quick, and we can wrap up like our our general thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, he talks about how objects in themselves are external to man and consequently alienable by him. So there's some alienation popping up in mm-hmm. in there. Um, he talks about um, let's see to each other's honor, blah blah. He talks about how there's very few, he says there has no existence in primitive society based on property in common. And he talks about how there, there are societies that have property in common. He says there's the patriarchal family, an mm. ancient Indian community, or Peruvian Inca state. And I think that's important. I always tell people when they ask me about a, a nation that hasn't failed uh, under communism, I always tell them that I think Native Americans are a good example that they're pretty communal, right? Oh, Even dude, the the uh, the pueblo we went to a rally out here, and mm-hmm. we had a we had a representative from the Navajo, and she was like, we were doing communal, we were doing a we were doing communist theory before anybody out here, yeah. And so and so we were like, yeah, that's great. Everybody everybody ate it up, and so like, yeah, they really were, they really were the first, uh, you know, uh, uh, communist uh, practitioners. They uh, they 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 shared uh and you know they uh, their labor they owned the means of labor and their uh, exchange value system was perfect you know it was just a matter of uh goods and, and services were uh, fairly exchanged and uh, I, mean, I don't i don't know much about uh, I'm, I'm you know there's there is the uh the pueblo uh, cultural center out here that we haven't been to that's still closed but i really wanted to go there just so i could you know dive head first into that um, the native, the native practice, because I, I mean, it really was just, you know, communism. And so, uh, uh we have, we haven't had to go out there and see that, but it's just over here. It's by, it's actually by Old Town. Um, mm. you know, so, um, so we're gonna, we're gonna try and go out there when it opens again, but, um, yeah, I'm really excited to get, get my hands on there. But other than that, I just, the, I, I follow, I started following the uh, Navajo Times, which is like their, uh, their, um, their news source, uh, their, their own news source. So, um, they have like their own president and stuff like that, and, right? So, uh, but uh, yeah, I'm, 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 uh, we're getting more immersed in their culture, and where uh, we dig it, and they're they're really super inclusive, and uh, they really it's funny because they like they out here they they call themselves like the um, uh, the founders of our movement, and it's been a they said they've been communists for three hundred years, you know, and yeah. it's, it's been it's been uh, uh, it's been a three hundred year fight, you're saying, and. Um, it was, we, we had a, we had a very spiritual moment, uh, at this rally because we, we had, uh, we had these, uh, uh, these representatives out here, these, uh, uh, the Pueblos people and some Navajos and some natives. And they were doing, they were doing rituals. Like they were, they were, uh, they were protecting us. They were providing us with a shield. And then I kid you not, like it started storming, like really heavy storming. 
And everybody was just kind of like, okay, that's weird. And, <laughs> and then the storm cleared after like 10 minutes. And there was this insanely huge rainbow over the city. And we were like, okay, that's kind of crazy. So, yeah, it, it was a really cool spiritual moment that uh, we shared with them. And uh, um, we're definitely going to, we're going to be supporting them any way we can. Because Kohajali, the uh, the closest Navajo land, is not too far, just outside of town. So, um, you know, it's, uh, I, I, I think the Navajo, I bet the Navajo have like, I think their survival, their, their survival rate is the lowest. Dem- uh, yeah, their survival rate is the lowest among demographics in the country. Mm-hmm. Like the, Nav- the Navajo have been literally thrashed by uh, the virus, so it's uh, it's been a mess. So. Yeah, I think I think that's a that's a good point to make too about the the. I, mm-hmm. I think that so I think something that like people forget is that like especially with in terms of like a, a communal society like a. Even yeah. even before like, the term communism, right? Because like obviously the Native Americans didn't know the term communism, but mm-hmm. until it, you know that idea came here. But um, but but the communal societies, I think it has something to do, you know, with the, like the lifestyle, and then like the enlightenment, like Christian enlightenment comes right. along and mm-hmm. creates this. Um, I mean, this is also like in here he says, um, uh, let's see, man has often made. Man himself, under the form of slave, serve as the primitive material of money, but has never used land for that purpose. Such an idea could only spring up in a bourgeois society already mm-hmm. well developed. It dates from the last third of the 17th century, and the first attempt to put it into practice on a national scale was made a century afterwards during the French bourgeois revolution. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that, like, it, it does, like, kind of see this explosion of capitalism under the French Revolution. And I think. You know, obviously, like the colonization of right. native lands happens because of uh, capitalism. I mean, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, especially like killing them and, and, and enslaving them, enslaving right. in the Africans is a direct result of capitalism. It's yeah. free labor. I mean, and, and they and, and the Pueblos people out here, they know that. And like, they're very open to say this happened to us because of capitalism. I'm like, I fucking love it. I mean, you guys, like, you guys, you guys got it. Like, let's, let's fucking bring it down. And they're, they're really, they're really, man, they're, they're, they're so, I don't, they're just on fire. Like, I don't know how else to describe it, but like these, there really is like a, they, it's, it's a fire on them. Like they, and they're not even, it's not like they, they said, we're not, we're not doing this because we're against capitalism. We're doing this because we're, we're fully for a socialist, you know, communist, uh, uh, state. And like we, this is just how they've. This, this is just how we've lived for all this time, and because of capitalism, that that drastically changed for all of us. So, um, but yeah, it's 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 been really enlightening to hear that from them, especially because like you know they're they're educated on it now. Like you know, a lot of people just think they, a lot of people, uh, the, the stereotypical idea is that they just you know they they don't they don't have uh, they don't attribute it to capitalism or they don't attribute it to. Uh, I mean, they treat it just purely to colonialism, but they don't. They, mm-hmm. That's as that's as far of the connection as they make. You know, <laughs> they don't. They don't. They don't go on to say, "Oh, I mean, colonial colonialism was a result of uh, uh, the growth of capitalism." Like right. they actually made that jump, um, and me and I are like, "Oh my god, that's incredible!" Like, like they're all over it. And it's. Uh, I remember they're saying, "We're not. We're not doing this because we're against capitalism. We're doing it because we're for 
that the academy had a lot to do with that. I feel like a lot of like uh, uh, academics have moved away from from Marxist Marxist, yeah. especially. I mean, it's the it's the Red Scare, really, right? Like the Red yeah. Scare kind of moved us yeah. away from Marxism and and not looking at capitalism critically to where like we go, okay, it's it's colonialism. Colonialism yeah. is the problem. Yeah. Colonialism is a is a symptom, right? Yep. I'd like to say that colonialism is a symptom because, like, if you're if you're looking to expand your empire, you're also looking to expand your material wealth in a very easy way, which is is uh, it's you know, and Marx talks about this. It's it's the form of man. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's easy. To, right. It's easy if when you enslave men, you, you basically get completely free labor. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I want to say so. I have one last thing to say about it, and then I also I want to talk about your general thoughts of the whole section that we read. So. I think that um, I think that so so the last part in chapter two that mm-hmm. he talks about is he talks about the magical quality of money, right? Yeah, and I think that that is means a couple of things. The first thing I think it means is that like money again is the great equalizer. So all of these complex. Uh, you know, values, right? Like, uh, you know, use value, like exchange value, all of these values are tied into money. It's like this, uh, you know, it's it's like this magical thing because money, as we know and we've seen, is fake, right? Right, yep. But it's this thing that, it, it's this thing that holds this quality in it, this ethereal quality. So it is kind of magical. It's like the, it's like the, the genie's lamp, right? It holds the genie. Right. It's just, it, physical thing that holds all of these yeah that's a really good metaphor yeah the genie's bottle the genie's bottle yeah. yeah and and i think like the genie's bottle it's very dangerous right like because yeah. you know money equals power especially in today's society but but i want to get your your general so I, I think we should wrap up on these two things but i want to get your overall thoughts of these sections that we read these the first two chapters of capital well i'll say uh and I, I don't i don't i don't mean this like uh be critical of it, but I think the the worst or the hardest part's over with. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I think from here on out we're gonna get because uh, the uh, Marx's Marx's uh, you know his best is when he's artistic and when he's uh, very humanist mm-hmm. and when he can and when he can apply his science to uh, to philosophy and political philosophy and being a humanist and um, and applying to socialist aspects um, and he. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited. My general thoughts are, uh, uh, yeah, the, the hardest part's over with. Um, I think we've got a good ground of what he's, cause you know, he's, he's going, going forward. He's going to use commodities. He's going to use the, uh, you know, uh, labor value, or use value, and exchange value. Um, and he's going to talk about, uh, uh, obviously money. He's going to be saying money and he's going to be talking about, um, commodities and money a lot. So, um, yeah, I'm actually I'm glad we read it like this. I think this is the way to go. If you're going to read it, I mean, just just go into it. You know, just start the start start from the uh, the top and then work your way down. You just gotta yeah, you gotta plow plow through. I mean, there's a reason that he uh you know he put these two chapters first. I feel like right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think I think I think that's not necessary. I think that that is a it's a dig, but also I think it's not like I think. Because you know Marx was part of this group called the Young Hegelians, right? He was—he's very influenced by Hegel. I mean, obviously, like dialectical materialism just comes from Hegelian dialectics. But I think that what we have to say, though, is that like he—he—he is a true Hegelian in this section, right? Like it's really hard. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to um, 
to read and to grasp, but mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, it's not hard. It's it's not hard in 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 the sense that it's like really hard to understand. It's just kind of like it's it's dense, like you said. It's very there's a lot of information. I feel like he yeah. says a lot, but there's uh, a he, lot. He, of he sa- yeah, he says he covers a best way to just. I guess the best way I can say it is he covers a lot of ground really fast. Yes. You know? Yeah, so he he makes some big he makes a really big stride uh, going in with all of this uh, um, with all of this commodity talk. So, um, but yeah, it's it's definitely I guess for someone. I mean, if you, if you if you're listening to this, you just you, you're gonna jump into it. Uh, I, I I don't think I could have taken my time because I finished all of this like Monday, and so I had all this extra time that I could have been reading it. Mm-hmm. So I I guess. My advice when it comes to reading is really just take your time and soak it in. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's like it's like wine. Sip it, you know. So, uh, yeah, sip it and don't. Uh, um, I felt, I felt, I felt more compelled. I felt more compelled. I felt a little overwhelmed reading a little too much. Like mm-hmm. I found myself, I found myself stopping. I, I remember I find, find myself stopping it. Like, uh, I mean, you guys can't see me, but like I had my hand, I had my head on uh, my forehead. I'm just like, okay, so he's saying, and then there's just a huge train of thought. And then you start the application process, and then it's uh, um, and it's, and it just it's 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 uphill. It feels uphill when I'm doing that, but then and then but then there's a downhill. You know, it's like mm. I have I have my I have my rising thoughts, and then I hit my main point. I'm like, okay, now here we go. And then, hey, JT. Yeah, and then, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we can it's, we can uh, mark it. Yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, no, I'm excited. Uh, I'm I'm going to start reading this. Uh, probably as uh, as soon as uh, tonight or um tomorrow, but uh, mm-hmm. you know it depends on what we're gonna do. We're probably gonna get some Chinese food here, so okay. Um, and then uh, I don't know what I'm gonna do, but uh, I'm excited. I'm definitely. I think I'm. I it, it's it's really good because I'm excited, and I didn't think I would be excited. Like I didn't think it would take that long to keep me excited. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, but then again, like I didn't do any like I didn't do any. Like I didn't go to any opinion leaders and was like, "Hey, what do you think of Capital?" Or I didn't, mm. I didn't uh, I, like I didn't, I didn't ask you or Cole or because uh, uh, I, well, I didn't know if you had read it yet. But I didn't go to anyone. Was like, "Hey, uh, I'm about to read Capital. You have any thoughts?" I, I just like I just dove in, you know. Right. And I think I think that was a good that was a good decision on my part because I went in completely blind. Yeah, I think yeah, I, I agree with that. I think it's um, I think you can get a little bit of like secondary literature about Capital. I think you can kind of like. Um, you, you know, cause like, again, it's not, you know, it's not for everybody, um, like reading theory and reading, you know, especially like, you know, pretty hard stuff like, like ca- uh, chapter one, it's not for everybody, but yeah, I, I, I would, I would say that I think it's, I think you should read chapter one, two first. Um, and I think my overall thoughts of it is that he, I agree with, um, I think it's Ryan Ingley from Y theory. He said that. You know, it's that when you read it, you understand that Marx understood capitalism better than you do, yeah. right? I think that's something yeah. that, like, it kind of is probably going to be, you know, while while we're reading Marx, right. you know, it's going to kind of kind of kind of continue like as a theme, right? Like, he he's a very smart person. He's very he's very intelligent. He's very, you know, thought provoking. And and yeah. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I wasn't sure if we were going to jump into Marx himself. Like, I didn't know if we were going to uh, talk about him, but um, I wasn't sure. If there, uh, uh, I mean, because we didn't really have, like, a introduction. Uh, mm-hmm. So, uh, um, I mean, Marx is, Marx is pretty easy to understand. I mean, you could, 
I think I think his Wikipedia has a lot of good info. So like you know, I, yeah, I I would agree with that. Yeah, read his, read some of his yeah. Wikipedia if you want the man yeah. himself. I, I I tend to be in the camp though, um, and, and I want to talk a little bit about this before we um, sign off here. But I, I was kind of in the camp that uh, uh, so there recently there was a lot of um, hey don't don't read Marx like this cracker ass white person or whatever like on yeah. twitter right like like that's yeah. where the discourse lies is twitter now but uh right. <laughs> it was don't read marx read like angela davis or whatever and it's like well these people will tell you to read marx right the people that you're saying read will tell you one is to say i psyop like we just have to be completely uh <laughs> honest with that but also i i said that like marx is a person it doesn't like I, I consider myself a marxist but i don't think that Marx as a person matters. I think his work is what matters. Mm-hmm. Um, regardless of what he has done or who he is, I think like this, these are very important thoughts, especially for mm-hmm. a communist or, or a leftist in general. His labor. We, 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 we needed his labor. Yeah, yeah we needed his intellectual labor to yeah. do whatever. And I mean, honestly, he could have been born anyone, right? Like, And I think that's part of the the appeal that I have of being a Marxist is that like, I don't, I don't worship the man Marx. I think I, his ideas are incredible, um, yeah, yeah. but that's just um, it. Yeah. So yeah. I think, um, Oh, what were you going to say? No, no, I was going to say that's, that's about the extent of my thoughts. Um, mm. um, I keep, uh, I've been watching a lot of wrestling, so I keep alluring back to like wrestling, but like we're, he, he, he just cut his, he just cut his, uh, his, his promo. So he's, uh, or the glass hasn't shattered yet. You know, he's he's Marks three sixteen, but he hasn't he hasn't started dismantling the system yet in this book. So we're gonna get there. You know, he right. hasn't gone. He hasn't. We, he's introduced himself. You know, he's uh, he's the uh, he's the working man, uh, Karl Marx, but he's not he's not stone cold Karl Marx yet. We're gonna we're gonna get there, so, right? But that those are that's that's my thoughts. Okay, so yeah, so I wanted to wrap this up, and I'll say that um that so this is again. Like we said at the top, but I'll, I'll reiterate before we leave. This is it's going to be a bi-monthly, so every two weeks uh, podcast. That way, we have uh, me and Austin have time to read and enjoy social lives and stuff too. Um, you know, and but also to digest ideas because, like, I think this is the best way to do it is to to read something, like let it digest, and then you know talk about it. So, so we did. I mean, um, you, you said you finished it Monday. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I finished it. Sunday or Tuesday. I think it was, yeah, it was Sunday. Yeah, I finished it Sunday. And, and I wanted to say that, like, I think given that time to think about it and, and stuff has definitely helped uh, the discussion flow. So, so yeah. next, next time though, so we're going to finish because it's the longest part of, of, you know, section one, right. Of, of, of um, a part one, my bad, not section one, but a part one, which is commodities and money. We're going to read, and if you're reading along, we're reading chapter three, which is money or the circulation of commodities. And because that's such a long section, it's 30 pages, and it's over 30 pages in my and Austin's book, mm-hmm. um, we're just going to do that entire section by itself for the next okay. episode. Okay. And then we will um, definitely, you know, we'll, we'll come back and I'll, we'll discuss what we're reading after that. So. Yeah, but we'll we'll uh we'll come back again. Like it's chapter three. Like if you're on the Marxist Internet Archive or wherever you're reading Capital, um, they always have it broken down like this. So part one, commodities and money. Chapter three, money or the circulation of commodities. So again, this episode was part one, commodities and money. Chapter one, 
Commodities Chapter 2 Exchange. So, Austin, do you have anything else to sign off with? No, I'm, uh, I'm all set. I'm, uh, I'm excited. Uh, so this is, uh, um, I think, I think this was a good idea. I think this was, uh, this is definitely going to help me. This is going to help all of us digest capital a lot better doing this. So I'm, uh, I'm excited. So, uh, I'll be, I'll be ready to go next time around. Okay, cool. So I guess we will, um, see you guys later. All right. See ya.